Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 11 of The Nature of Middle-Earth, and tonight we are going to complete our discussion of part one, he says very confidently, indeed. Uh, in fact, if I were feeling rash as well as uh, confident, <clears throat> I would even predict that we might have a shorter class than usual today, um, because I, I was tempted to like go on and take some notes on the first couple chapters of part two, but I was like, you know what? I said the end of part one, and uh, let's not push our luck. So, uh, <laughs> so, so there we go. Um, anyway, we'll see. But I did want to remind you before we started of the upcoming schedule. Um, we are, it's another reason why I didn't want, even if we did have a chance, why I didn't want to uh, uh, push on and begin a, 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 a little bit of a discussion on part two, um, because it's going to be a bit of a break. Um, so after this, it will be, we won't be able to have class for the next two weeks. I'm going to be out of town next week. And then uh, the week after that, the week, the holiday week in between Christmas and New Year's, uh, where uh, I'm not broadcasting that week. So it's going to be <clears throat> first week of January should be what should it be? The fifth January 5th uh, will be our next discussion. We'll start up part two uh, on January 5th. So um, uh, let's let's uh, look ahead and see. I was thinking we could discuss the first five chapters, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. Well, let's do let's do let's let's uh, there's some of them are shorter than I remembered. Okay, seven. Let's do seven. Yeah, we'll get chapters. We'll get chapters on hair and beards and mind pictures. It's going to be awesome. So let's look at uh, the first seven chapters of part two for next time. So I just wanted to say that at the beginning, make sure. I don't forget. Um, and to remember that um, after tonight, our next session will be on the 5th of January. Um, excellent. Okay. Um, very good. Let me see. I have the... Uh, there we go. I had the wrong thing up there. Okay. Um, excellent. Okay. Excellent. So, um, <laughs> right. Plus, there is a poetry fragment to talk about tonight, James. You're completely right about that. Uh, so we will. Um, uh, we'll see. We'll see. How, and needless to say, I want to talk about the poetry fragment. Uh, so, uh, big finish. Big finished. Big and unexpected, unforeseen finish uh, to part one. Uh, complete departure from the mathematics uh, by the time we get to the end, uh, the very end uh, of part one here. Um, but um, uh, so let's let's jump straight back into things here. When he returned to this again, now the date given for chapter 19 is 1969. So you'll remember that a lot of the stuff that he was working on before was happening around 1959. And then we jumped ahead. Um, that kind of culminated in that moment where he's like, man, you know, like, how about one to one? Let's just do growth years one to one. Remember that? And then he was like. Yeah, at that point, he was like, oh, man, that stuff, that's it's just it's crazy. It doesn't work like it doesn't make any sense. Let's um, let's just go to one to one. And then he took a few years off and returned to it in 1965 and said, OK, no, three to one, three to one. That's where the porridge is just right. Right. The three to one ratio, um, not 12, not 144, just the 
uh, three to one ratio for growth, and then the 144, and then everything works fine. <clears throat> so um, that was uh, uh, that was 1965. Now we're up in 1969, which means not only are we fully 10 years after the original world building that he was doing in that post Lord of the Rings publication period when he was really sitting down in the late 50s to to really roll up his sleeves and get to work on redoing the Silmarillion as we were seeing uh, at the beginning. It's not only 10 years past that. Of course, also, if we remember the end, uh, you know, the other end of the timeline, 1973 uh, was the year of his death. So it's only four years now before the end of his death that he's coming back to this. So this is now getting into that last phase. It's been 10 years since he's been sort of theoretically working um, on the Silmarillion. And so him, his returning to the world building here is very interesting to me. Um, it's very interesting to me. I'm trying to think of this in the larger creative context. That is trying to ask the question as I do something, you know, when I read these texts and these fragments of texts, one of the things that I ask myself, we can't always know for sure, um, but one of the things I always ask myself is, what is Tolkien doing here? Uh, By which I don't mean, what is Tolkien doing here? What I mean is, what, what is this text? What is this text? Is this an early draft of a text that he is thinking or is, you know, trying to put together to publish? I mean, is, is, is this intended? Is, is this written for an external audience? Is this written just for himself? Are these notes to himself that he's writing? What exactly is going on here? Um, and then having answered that question, the question is then, how does this fit? What does this tell us about what Tolkien's doing? Bigger picture, right? What he's wanting to do, what he's trying to do. As I said, it seemed clear in those late 50s texts that we were reading at the very early parts of part one there, in the first five, six chapters, um, that Tolkien was preparing himself um, to write, uh, to write this, to rewrite the Silmarillion. He was writing some background notes, but some of those, you'll remember, were drafted as if for an audience, right? As if he were writing an appendix or he were writing a preface or something, right? Something that somebody might conceivably read, um, you know, an essay that someone might conceivably read in conjunction with the Silmarillion to be giving this kind of background information, right? Um, So all of that put together suggested to me pretty strongly that in 1959, having published The Lord of the Rings, you know, having gotten that out and he's in that period where he's asking, answering questions about The Lord of the Rings and, um, but he's now clearly ready, right, uh, to move on to the next project and remember also where that was in his life as well, right? We're talking about, um, uh, what are we talking about? He was in his mid sixties at that point, you know, mid to late, uh, uh, yeah, his mid to late sixties, um, by that time. Um, so, you know, this was the, uh, he was prepared to take time, obviously. I mean, the amount of time he spent doing math by hand, as we saw, um, is clear that he was, um, in no rush 
right? He, he was not feeling rushed in doing this. Uh, indeed, as I was suggesting last time, he was clearly luxuriating and quite enjoying himself um, doing the math and answering these little questions and doing all of his mathematical what-ifs as he's trying to work out uh, the system, right? And make sure that this that he can bring all of these things together, the myth, the math, the story, and uh, make it all work. And he was obviously enjoying himself doing that. It's 10 years later now. It's 10 years later now. It's 1969. So he's, he's what, uh, 77 already now at this time? Um, so, yeah, uh, this is, it's hard for me to see, to think that Tolkien is approaching now in 1969, approaching the Silmarillion material in quite the same way that he was a decade earlier, right? Um, in his mid-60s, you know, mid to late 60s, he might have been thinking, okay, like now I'm approaching retirement, right? I mean, he's been teaching, he's been working all, you know, he's, he did The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and all this other stuff that he did um, while, um, you know, while while writing, you know, while doing his academic work and his teaching and everything else. Um, but, uh, you know, so now he's working towards retirement, right? So, okay, this, he's going to have some time now. Now he has time, more time than he, he's going to have more time than he ever had, right, to do all these things. Um, can he still think that in 1969? I'd be surprised if he thought that in 1969. Um, so what do we see when he returns to this? What does, what do we learn about where his mind was in 1969, right? By reading some of the stuff that we're going to read here tonight. Okay. So let's look at it. The Elvish lives should go in cycles. They achieved longevity by a series of renewals. After birth and coming to maturity and beginning to show age, they began a period of quiet in which, when possible, they retired for a while and issued from it renewed again in physical health to approximately the vigor of early maturity. Their knowledge and wisdom were, however, progressively cumulative. This had not appeared in the periods dealt with or had only begun towards the end of the Third Age. The fading was apparent in this way. The periods of activity and full vigor became progressively shorter, and the renewal was not so complete. They were a little older at each renewal than at the previous renewal. Okay, so this is completely new, right? I mean, this is an utter departure from everything that we have seen before, right? Um, we've seen him tweak stuff, you know, just tweak the math. 144 to 1, 12 to 1, 10 to 1, 3 to 1, 1 to 1, right? I mean, you know, those aren't, those are all the same basic conception. Okay, I mean, there's some, some of the gaps in those are large enough to be very substantive, very qualitative, as well as quantitative differences. But in general, he's just, uh, he's just tweaking the numbers to make the math come out right. Um but the conception of the growth of the elves, right? Them not growing really slowly, 
right? You know, they don't stay toddlers for a century, right? They don't remain pimply teenagers for a thousand years. No one would wish that on anyone. Um, uh, you know, so they grow up faster, but then they settle, they, they settle in, they don't freeze, right? They don't freeze. They may to humans appear to freeze, but they don't freeze. They continue on in a life cycle that can be compared to mortal lives, right? 144 to one is a pretty big ratio, right? So again, no human is going to be able to observe that at all. But yet, um, you know, over the course of a dynasty, they will see the elf age, right? And uh, and progress, even though they're not necessarily going to get, you know, all like wizened and such uh, and that uh, and that kind of thing. So that was the core idea from the start, like from the earliest, from chapter one, we saw that basic conception in place and his, the only, all of the changes that he was making, some of which were fairly significant, but all of them were still just basically fine tuning exactly how that worked. Um, and sometimes we saw him that like the math was pushing him in one way, um, you know, in order for the math and the story to line up, he was having to stretch the basic concept of elves. Right. But that basic concept, although it got stretched in a few places and strained in a few places in order to match the story and the math, um, he, you know, as I was saying, it's clear that those two were the higher priority story first, math second, um, world building third. Um, nevertheless, he never just did something different. And this, this is different. Very different. Um, the very first thing that I notice about this is finally, finally, after much comment by me, um, we see him appearing to absolutely jettison the idea that elvish um, timescale is just comparable to human, right? That the lives of elves and the lives of humans um, can be placed in, in parallel constructions. Um, you know, despite the fact that uh, one is, you know, on a different scale, right? But, you know, if you adjust for the scale, it's functionally the same, right? To the extent that, like, I mean, you could see how much the same it was when he was trying to balance the Aragorn and Arwen thing, right? I mean, when he was, when he was asking the question, is she too old for him, right? Um, I mean, you could see that was a very fine-tuned kind of question, right? When it was coming, when the equivalency was coming down with her in her early 40s, he was like, eh, doesn't work, right? Um, why wouldn't it work? Well, because she's too old for him, right? I mean, that's, it's, it's, it was very, very close parallels. This, and now maybe you can still say there's a parallel within each cycle, right? But this makes elves once again, and for the first time since the very beginning, um, I've been, I've been saying my own conclusion as we've been, you know, the, you know, my observations and the conclusion I have drawn from them as we've been reading through part one is that as time has gone on, um, he began by emphasizing the difference between elves and, and men, right? While still maintaining a parallel, right? But he began by emphasizing the differences and then those differences shrank and shrank and shrank as he went along until towards the end, um, he, uh, he, he was insisting on an almost 
not an identity. I mean, he never said they were exactly the same, but that that one-to-one thing, right, where he was like, oh, yeah, their body's basically the same, right? Um, I mean, that was the... That was the point where, in his conception, he, um, humans and elves had come closest of all, right? Um, and now, now the elves are suddenly very different again, right? Um, they get younger. They reset. Okay, so they retire and they go through renewal. And it's not just about the fea, right? It's not just some kind of internal... It's not like they, they go on a spiritual retreat, right? And come back refreshed in spirit or something like that with, with you know, a reinvigorated uh, fear or something like that. No, it's a physical change. It's their bodies as well. Um renewed again in physical health to approximately the vigor of early maturity. And it's after they're beginning to show age again in their bodies beginning. So they're start, they, they start. So first of all, newsflash number one, the elves start to look old. They didn't used to do that. Right. And now they are not only looking old, they're going backwards again towards youth. Like, Treebeard imagined he was doing, but he was joking when he said that. Um, you know, getting hasty, uh, g- going backwards again towards youth, he says. Um, yeah, so... Um, now, Stephen, I was thinking exactly the same thing. Um, Stephen was suggesting saying that this idea, this renewal concept reminds them a bit of elves dying and being reborn in their descendants. Made me think of that too. Now, this is not the same thing. This is not reincarnation in a, you know, like a new baby being born with the same elvish spirit in it. And yet that idea of the renewal of like the fair being given a new Hroa like that, um, you know, being embodied in a new Hroa. Um, so, I mean, in one sense, Stephen, of course, someone might say to us, well, it's exactly opposite to that, actually, right? Because the whole point of the reincarnation thing is that you're given a totally new Hroa, right? Whereas this is a, instead, in direct contrast to that, a reinvigoration of the old Proa, right? So this is how they can keep the old Proa going. Um, what it would seem to be is an extreme backing off of the whole they're getting invisible right away thing, right? Uh, I mean, before we had the, um, you know, the rise of the Fea and the decline of the Hroa until the uh, uh, Fea consumed the Hroa and um, they became invisible, right? That's what the fading was all about before. Now, it's not necessarily that we're going to forget invisibility entirely, but we're pushing that way off, right? Way, way off. Um, and uh, so, but nevertheless, I would think, even though I would certainly concede to anyone who tried to make that argument that this is in fact opposite to reincarnation in that way, but I would also say there still is something that feels kind of this idea of a regular renewal, 
right? He has rejected that idea of reincarnation, especially reincarnation in a new baby, right? Um, but the idea that the, um, you know, that elves can uh, come and go, right? They, they can not only go, but they can also come. Um, that there is a cyclical um, uh, kind of pattern here in elf in elf life. Now, again, this one is necessarily cyclical, right? The other thing, the reincarnation thing, back in Tolkien's early conceptions, and I'm talking about stuff, if you want to read more about Elvish reincarnation, um, you can read about this first in the Book of Lost Tales, especially the Book of Lost Tales, Volume 1, and then you can read about it more in Morgoth's Ring. We were talking about it in Morgoth's Ring. It came up there. Um, the idea where where we saw, by the way, Tolkien in the 50s, um, kind of toying with bringing that back and then deciding not to again. Um, but um, yeah, I I'm glad he did because I have a hard I mean, it's probably just me uh, but I find it comical um, the idea of a, you know, the mommy and the daddy elf present their new baby you know to the family and they're like and you know someone looks at this newborn infant and says it's grandpa right like it's I just I I can't even um but um yeah yeah um right but exactly Stephen Tolkien never fully rejects anything like that's exactly what I was thinking as well we're, we're, we're on exactly the same track here that um, Tolkien never Tolkien often cuts things he often removes things but as I was joking through, yeah, I've been joking through this series he's got a drawer Right, he's got a drawer in which he keeps those everything everything that he's ever cut. Right, every sentence he's ever cut from the text, every uh, every idea he's ever released, he 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 keeps it in a drawer, not literally. Right, I'm not saying he literally had a drawer. He had a figurative drawer in which all of this stuff was kept, and um and will sometimes pull it out at the most unlikely occasions. Uh, you will see a sentence that got cut from one place appear. Full, like, I, I without editing, right? Come like word for word. Uh, it will, it will uh, be of use again later on, or a name, right? Um, like Bladorthin, right? Bladorthin went into the drawer for a little while. Bladorthin was the name, the original name of the wizard, the gray wizard who comes to Bilbo in the Hobbit, right? And takes him and the dwarves away. They traveled with the wizard Bladorthin all the way until they left him in Mirkwood, and he was not renamed Gandalf until the dwarves emerged from the barrels in chapter 10. So the whole first nine chapters of The Hobbit he wrote, the wizard was Bladorthin, and then he changes his name to Gandalf, but of course he puts the name Bladorthin in the drawer and he pulls it out again. Um, and you will remember Bladorthin gets mentioned in The Hobbit as uh, the king for, who I think, didn't he commission the spears that they see there in, in the in Smaug's um, horde? Um... Uh, anyway, anyway, so um, I, that's just one really simple example of uh, Tolkien's uh, deployment of his drawer. Um, concepts like this seem to come up again and again. We were talking about this. We discussed Morgoth's ring when we saw, although he had appeared um, to 
remove the idea of elvish reincarnation dec- literally decades earlier um, we saw him return to flirt with it again uh, in the 50s so um, this kind of thing happens I, I think it's important uh, for us to uh, for us to remember it um, yeah okay all right so notice the scale here the scale here kind of surprises me actually um, and it's another way in which we see his whole conception of elvish lifespans changing very significantly here. He had been... Well, I was about to say he had been shortening the elvish lifespan. That's not quite right. Um, that's not saying it quite right, because, of course, the elves, the lifespan of the elves was coterminous with Arda. That's always been true, right? And he wasn't deviating from that. But what I meant was their physical life, right? The, um, the time that they spent... Um, uh, in enjoying their roar, right? Um, we saw he was introducing the fading fairly early by his by following his math as we were by looking at so, some of the playtesting he was doing. Remember, there were several times when he was calculating that Galadriel was on the way out at the end of the third age, right? That he would you know was calculating her age span and she was, you know, she was due. She was due to start going all, um, uh, you know, back to the future uh, uh, at the end of the third age, right? She was starting to, 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 to get a little fuzzy and uh, transparent around the edges, right? Um, she was starting, she was going to start to fade uh, imminently. And remember, there was one place where he was suggesting, you know, th- this could really work for the story. It could very well be her own sense of her own imminent fading, Um that she is, in fact, losing her grip on her roa, right? And therefore, on this interaction with the world, that would lead to the temptation, that would set up the temptation. Um, that would be part of one of the things motivating Galadriel um, to, uh, you know, it, w- when she was experiencing the tests that she was experiencing. Um, so that's... We saw him go there, right? Um, then... But now look at this. This had not appeared in the periods dealt with or had only begun towards the end of the Third Age. So no elf, no elf in any of the stories anyway, had ever gone through... So all of the First, Second, and Third Age, apparently, is happening within the scope of the first life cycle of the elves. So if Galadriel was due for anything at the end of the Third Age by this construction, she would have been due for a retirement, right? And she would have come back younger, apparently, right? Um, Younger and uh, renewed again to the vigor of early maturity. She would have been, once again, she'd have come back to Middle-earth all full of pep and vinegar like she was when she came over into Beleriand in the first place. I don't know. Um, That's what she would have been due for, maybe. I mean, if she was do for anything, it would have been that, apparently, by this, right? And the fading was not a you're due to start your invisibility soon, right? Your Thea is taking over your Roa. No, the fading was that the periods of activity and full vigor became shorter, and the renewal was not so complete. So, um, so there's, yeah, diminishing marginal returns, Kendall. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, 
Um, yeah, yeah. And if the first cycle, so I mean, okay, they're getting progressively shorter, but if the first cycle lasted from, you know, mid first age all the way to the end of the, I'm just gauging by Goadro here, um, using his own model, right? As uh, she's been one of his playtest points all the way through, right? So assuming he's thinking of Goadriel and that this conception works for Goadriel, um, even if her second cycle were shorter, <clears throat> right? And her third shorter still, how long would they be? Where would she be now? You know, by the time we get to the seventh age here, right? Would she be in her third or fourth cycle? How many did they get? Right? So again, instead of <clears throat> having the elves on this one admittedly long, you know, many thousands of years, but this one trek towards invisibility um, uh, and lack of you know, physical contact uh, with Arda anymore. Um, now they seem good to go for quite some time. And that's weird. I'm, I'm going with weird. Um, and I say weird, that's a strong word, but I'm going with weird because it's... <sighs> I can't help but remember where Tolkien started, right? If you can remember where we started when we began discussing uh, the Book of Lost Tales back in, golly, what was that, 2014? We started discussing the Book of Lost Tales ages ago. Um, man, we're all due for a, a renewal of youth, I think, since we started, <laughs> since we started this, uh, this discussion. But um, if we can remember back that far to 2014 when we were discussing the Book of Lost Tales, Tolkien's starting point, and I mean the starting point of his entire mythology, right? The whole mythology for England thing, right? What was the heart of it? What was the essence of it? What, um, what was... What was the, like, sort of observational starting point from which it began? And where it began was the sense of elvishness lingering in especially in certain places in England these places that remember the elves and where you can just get a faint hint of something right but you don't meet elves anymore right these um uh these um the lingering companies Right, I'm thinking of some of his early poetry, like Criterion Among the Trees, where we see him talking about this and thinking about this. And again, he was writing that back in in um, you know 1914, you know, a century before we started talking about it. Um, and um, so, yeah. Anyway, that's where he always started. This is why the fading. This is what the fading was all about. Why do elves fade? Why should there be a fading? Why do they diminish at all? Like, why is that part of the story? It's always part of the story, right? Gladriel talks about it, right? We've we've seen him talk about it from the beginning. Well, that's why. Because he was starting with a diminished elvendom. Now, at the very beginning, what he was doing was explaining the Victorian fairy conceptions, right? There was a, you know, there was a, a, a popular, not exactly a popular belief, but a popular enjoyment of the stories of the little, you know, um... Tinkerbell fairies, 
right? The little tiny fairies that hid in, you know, bluebells and that kind of thing, right? Um, and he was explaining, like, how did the great elves of old, like, uh, how did we come to this, right? How do we come to this? Why are there... Um, and, 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 and yes, I know he rejected those and said that's not what fairy is really all about. That was later. He wrote that in on fairy stories decades after he wrote the stuff he did in the Book of Lost Tales, where it was obvious, um, despite any of his later protestations. He changed his mind, right? That's not where he began. Where he began as a creative artist, where he began as a myth maker, is with accepting as a given that Victorian conception of diminutive fairies um, and working with that as a starting point, explaining it, right? How did fairies diminish, literally physically diminish to become small? Um, how did they, and, and apparently, perhaps, uh, in some ways, invisible, too. Um, uh, so, so, again, like, that was the starting point. That was where everything began, and so the fading is, has always been a given in Tolkien's world. Well, okay, now the fading, it's still there, right? I mean, you know, he mentions it right off, right? The fading was apparent in this way. But the ways in which the fading is apparent, according to him here, is not consistent with those stories that he was telling, right? Um, again, a genuinely new Conception. This is um, very remarkable. Very remarkable. Let's keep looking. Another passage here on this. Okay, this is him continuing to... And now he, he begins to think about marriage and stuff. He's doing the world building again. Elves married in, perpe in perpetuity, and as long as a first mate was alive and incarnate, they had no thought of other marriage. In Amman, the only case of a breach was Muriel Finway. Muriel and Finway, right? Yeah, they're... <laughs> Muriel and Finway, uh, the elvish bad data points. Uh, in Middle-earth, especially in the Elder Days, violent death was frequent, but the slain, uh, perhaps, etc., could by the Valar be restored to life at their own choice. Okay, hang on. Footnote on be restored to life. As Tolkien's footnote, by healing of the body or its complete rebuilding of one. A body, that is. The Eldar were ever reborn. That Eld Eldar were ever reborn is a fancy of men. Yeah, that's ridiculous, right? Whoever thought of that clumsy idea, right? Yeah, no, that's a human fantasy, right? Um, the relation of Fea and Roa made this impossible. The Fea was a gift of Eru and fitted from the beginning and forever to its particular body. Okay, so there we go. Immort uh, uh, reincarnation right out. Right out. Um, it could be rebuilt, though. It could be rebuilt. like Because you've got... Remember, he talked about this in Morgoth's Ring. Um, the Fea of the elf retains the blueprint... Right, so even if your original body got completely nuked, right? I mean, like somebody, somebody not only killed the elf and chopped them up into pieces, but like burned their body and scattered the ashes and stamped on them, right? Like, no matter what happened to their roa, their fea retains the blueprint, and so it could get they could they could rebuild, 
they could rebuild. They could uh, they could establish a new body um, by the Valor. The Valor needed help with that process, apparently. Um, but um, but it's uh, it's possible. It's possible. Okay. Um, anyway, but then he goes on to emphasize. So let me go back to the main text. But the slain could, by the Valar, be restored to life at their own choice. The Valar became more, maybe, gentle in this matter. And the griefs of the Eldar were often so great before death that being unwilling to return was held pardonable, especially to those having no wife or ungrown children. Only in one known case, Beren, did the Valar, by special permission of Eru, restore a human body to life and suffer its fea to return. If a wife was left widowed, or vice versa, forever remarriage forever was left widowed, or vice versa, forever, remarriage was permissible, but seldom occurred. Okay. Now, first of all, none of this has anything to do necessarily with the renewal cycles that he was talking about before, right? He's going to come back to that in a minute, right? But let's make sure that we're, I, I need to, um, um, uh, I need to, uh, make sure I'm getting all this here because th- these are, so first of all, what's Tolkien doing here? Who's his audience? Clearly him, right? This is brainstorming note-taking here. And um, the handwriting is not good. You can see there are places, there are words that are almost impossible to make out. And um, this is really sketchy, right? He's jumping all over the place. It's pretty, it's kind of hard to follow. Um, so again, I, this is clearly not being written for presentation, I think. Um, but, um, but okay. Uh, I don't think... Hmm. All right, so I'm going to say something which is probably right. But you can tell me if it's not. Um, I'm going to say that um, there's nothing here that is fundamentally different from what he had been saying in Morgoth's Ring, which is now a decade gone, um, time-wise. This is 1969, remember. A little less than a decade, maybe. The idea of the reconstruction of the body, um, the reincarnation at their own, or the re-embodiment, <clears throat> not reincarnation, in a new body, but the re-embodiment in their old body or in a a, a, a direct and excellent facsimile thereof, uh, following their um, their blueprints at their own choice. Um, that all seems perfectly legit. I think that he is thinking of his the copious writing that he did about the Muriel and Finway uh, case, um, which is just a bizarre and fascinating uh, case study in um, bereavement, divorce, uh, uh, spousal estrangement, and reconciliation. Um Posthumous divorce, right? Like your wife dies first and you divorce her afterwards. Um, anyway, it's um, irreconcilable differences, which then later get reconciled, sort of. Anyway, like it's... Woof. Okay. It's complicated, as we saw uh, in Morgoth's Ring. But he's clearly thinking about that stuff. I mean, he alludes to it. Um, the... Uh, 
the line about um, the widow. Where's the widow line? Yeah, okay. If a wife was left widowed or vice versa forever, forever, remarriage was permissible, but seldom occurred. That's that's the that's the judgment, right? That's the that's the precedent established um, by Finway and Muriel, right? That if if your wife, if your spouse dies, if your spouse dies, but she might come back because she could do that, right? At her own choice, she could do that. And if she comes back, like, guess what? You're still married, right? So you can't go off and remarry. Like if your wife drops off a cliff and dies, right? That does not give you permission to go and remarry right off, right? No way, man. You've got to see if she's going to come back, which could take thousands of years, by the way. Right. Um, so you need to wait um, until you know. Now, how do you know? Well, that's a question. You know, Finway got insider information from the Valor on that point. But um, if it's known somehow that the wife is not going to come back because they can do that. They can choose. They can say, yep, no, I'm good. Um, it's uh, it's Mandos f- for me for 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 life. Right. For the rest of the life of Arda, I'm going to remain in Mandos. I'm, I'm good. I don't need a uh, Roa. Um, I'm not coming back. Then it's permissible to remarry. Um, but that doesn't happen very often, we're told. So, again, none of that is diff- the only one thing. The only one thing that. Um, strikes me as not exactly different in the sense of being contradictory to, but in addition to um, something said more emphatically than I recall it being said in Morgoth's Ring, it's the footnote. The business about the complete impossibility of the establishment of a new Hroa. And the reason that's striking me as different, because I distinctly remember in Morgoth's Ring him going back and forth on that question, right? Um... But he, so he's coming down firmly on that, you know, metaphysical issue, right? The relation of Fea and Roa made this impossible. Um, he's declared it a, 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 a human fancy, right? It's a, it's a, it's a piece of human uh, uh, fiction that uh, the Eldar were ever reborn. Please, as if that could happen. Okay. But wait, there's more. In lives not marred by death, or who enter it. Wait. Let me let me let me come again. In lives not marred by death, or who enter it. What's it? Any guesses as to the antecedent of that? In lives not marred by death, or who enter it, the youth renewing left the pair. Young and vigorous. Pair of what? Husband and wife? Yeah, must be. Okay. All right. Um, Marriage? Marriage. Marriage. In lives not marred by death. So he just talked about a wife was left widowed, right? So he's like, okay, when that's not the case, I've, I've addressed the widower question, right? Now, let's focus on two married elves who enter marriage, right, without there being a mortality, awkward mortality issue, right? So nobody's nobody's died. No, no one's a widow or a widower. Okay. 
in the in that case is the youth renewing left the pair young and vigorous both of them okay so do they retire together what do they do when they retire i mean do they they don't like go into a cocoon or something do they i mean i i, I that's a joke kind of a joke but like do they retire in the sense of just like step out of public life right? They just need a little peace and quiet. They get a little cabin off in the woods to themselves, right? Where they'd really just rather not be bothered? Or do they go into a kind of stasis, like not the same as Thingle and Melian were in, but like that kind of thing where they're just like in some kind of I don't know. Um, yeah, a long sleep maybe, Jen Artanis? I could totally see something like that, right? Um, uh, yeah. Exactly, Nancy. Babylon's five style. That's exactly what I was picturing when I was talking about that. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. But anyway, they've done this together, right? Whatever it was, the retirement, right? But let's draw the curtain on that because we don't know. But anyway, so after it, whatever it is, see again, look at that. Lack of antecedent. I'm doing it too. <laughs> I said it. Um, left the pair young and vigorous. But for a while, though they dwelt together, they went about their own businesses. Businesses. I don't know. Like they went about their own businesses. Right? Yeah. You know, one of them opens a little shop. You know, one of them starts an online consulting business. And recovered in something before a second period of parenthood arose. Okay. But for a while, though they dwelt together, they went about their own businesses. So. Okay. All right, all right, all right. I'm trying to understand here. We have two elves. They're born. They grow at some rate or other. Uh, they achieve maturity. They go through puberty. They achieve maturity. They get married. They have a time of the children, right? Bet they do have a time of the children. And they have, they, there's some begetting that occurs. Uh, they bear some offspring. Um, they raise their offspring. Then their minds go to other things, right? They have thing, other things that they occupy themselves with. Um, and then they retire together. End of life cycle. Number one, they retire together. They get young. When they return from retirement, whatever that looks like, younger and vigorous, right? They still, they still live together, still, still cohabitate, right? But they're also still, fo they were focused before on their own business, right? Their own interests. Um, and they are now, even though they're still living together, right? And now, a second time and the children can come along. They can they can make what they've been getting a second time. Apparently. Though we're told some never entered such a new period of parenthood. Right? <laughs> Kendall says, we've had one parenthood, yes, but what about second parenthood? Yeah. <laughs> apparently. Apparently, there you go. There you go. Um, yeah. Yeah. Kendall, I bet they do have unretirement parties. Boy, you are on fire tonight. Um, <laughs> okay, anyway. So they've come back and they can have a second period of parenthood. 
though some never enter such a new period. But though it was long before it was noticed, I bet it was, if they had, if no one had done it at all, even before the end of the Third Age, though it was long before it was noticed, at each new cycle, their vigor, the vigor, their vigor of the Eldar waned a little. Before the end of the Second Age. Oh, wait a second. I thought he said it hadn't happened. Anyway, before the end of the Second Age, youth renewals and the regeneration of children were becoming rare. Regeneration of children. That sounds bad, right? Um, uh, just means generation of children again, right? This is second parenthood cycle. Youth renewals and the regeneration of children were becoming rare. The Eldar were fading. Whether this was by the original design of Eru or a punishment for the sins of the Eldar is not certain. But their immortality within the life of the world was guaranteed, and they could depart to the blessed realm if they willed. Okay, hang on. Did I misread that before? I don't think I did, right? This had not appeared in the periods dealt with, or had only begun towards the end of the Third Age, he said. All right. Okay, so that's apparently not definite. Before the end of the Second Age, youth renewals and the regeneration of children were becoming rare. Youth renewals were becoming rare? What, it was like a fashion that had passed off? Right, people are like, oh, I, we used to restore it. Back in, the, you know, back in the day, we used to restore our youth, but... Rachel asked, did they ever have sex without begetting children? Not that we can tell. Uh, and, oh, hang on a second. Hang on. Did, like, one act of intercourse always equal a child? Um, that we don't know. That we don't know. Um, were they sexually active outside of the time of the children? That is what I doubt. Um, how sexually active were they during the time of the children? That we have no data on. Um, and I do not know if the the elves would... We know that they were in control of things like conception. So it wasn't just like a dubious, let's give this a shot and see what happens kind of deal when they were trying to conceive children. Um, uh, so it would seem likely that when they were in a begetting frame of mind, uh, they were more or less successful in that undertaking. Um, but I don't want to go beyond our data here. Um, again, I would feel, I would be very surprised to discover that even like between husbands and wives, um, that they were, I would be very surprised to discover that they were sexually active even within their marriage, outside of the time of the children. Um, but I did not get the impression... I don't know. Um, yeah. I don't know. We have no data on that. I, don't, I can't think of any data on that. Um, but... Um, yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting question. It's an interesting question. I mean, what it makes me think of, Rachel, 
is um, the Greek gods, right? I, I mean, like, uh, there isn't an, a single example that I can think of of a story when one of the Greek and Roman gods didn't, you know, came down, had sex with a mortal, and that did not result in pregnancy. I mean, it's like a hundred percent potency rate, right? Um, the embrace of the gods are never infertile. Um, that's um, a clear trend, right, within that mythology. Um, Art was Tolkien envisioning the elves in that same kind of way? It's possible. I mean, that would I would not be surprised. But again, we have no real evidence that that was um, that that was part of it. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So, Devora, we I, we don't have any reason to suspect that the elves ever experienced infertility. Um, is there any story that even vaguely hints at that? A thwarted desire to have children on the part of the elves? There can be times when they don't, because, you know, it's a time of, you know, war and strife, right? So that they don't have children. But as far as, like, that um, good faith efforts are being made, and yet unproductively, right? Uh, that's what I don't know. And I don't think of any that there's any evidence for um yeah yeah um interesting yeah don't know don't know um okay well this immediate shift that he's made from the this hadn't really happened at all by the end of the Third Age to before the end of the Second Age, it was becoming passé, um, is uh, certainly brings it more into consistency with the that overall flow of the mythology that I was describing before, right? Um, about how the fading meant they need to be out of the picture by the time it gets up here to the Seventh Age. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, hmm. Except, think about that last sentence again for a second. He talks about the fading and says he's not sure whether to attribute this to the original design of Eru or to a punishment for the sins of the Eldar. But their immortality within the life of the world was guaranteed, and they could depart to the Blessed Realm if they willed. Their immortality within the life of the world was guaranteed. Does he mean their Hroa? Like the Hroa of those elves? Their Hroar? I'm make sure I get my plurals correct here. Um, do we see him here backing away from the idea of the um, invisibility, right? Them fading, like from view, right? Uh, them uh, the, from the idea that the Fea is going to consume the Hroa of the of each elf as they move forward. Um, I don't know. I don't, um, 
I wonder. I wonder. Let's keep going. So, in chapter 20, we're getting a bunch of sort of random notes. Uh, by the way, I think I forgot to note this down. Somebody, tell, There's one of the later chapters where we jump back to 1959. Can somebody remind me which chapter that is, where that happens? I want to make sure I, I don't lose track, because I don't think I noted it. I think I forgot to note that down, and I want to make sure I remember that. Okay, here's a little note that uh, really jumped out at me. Time in Lorien? See explanation in Lord of the Rings Volume 1, but adjusted except for elves. Probably mortals entering had their growth rate and aging altered, not to the elvish rate, but much slowed, say to 1 to 7, so that the true 30 slash 28 days seemed about 4, then downstream for a short while. Really? Really? Um, now, this reminds me to touch on something that I had forgotten to touch on in those previous two slides. Notice what we got none of. Uh, did you notice the complete absence of mathematics in those previous two slides? No reference to growth rates, quantification of any kind, right? That was a pure world-building con conception, a pure how-elves-work idea that seemed to have no connection. There was no playtesting, right? There was no... So he was not checking it. He was not doing math of any kind to check it against the story and the timelines that he had in mind. That's... That's very interesting. Right? That's, that's, that's very interesting. Um, okay. Aha! This is the one noted from 1959. Thank you, James. I was wondering about that. I was, I was thinking that when he got to the Elvish growth rate because... In the 1969, there's no evidence that he's thinking about this at all. Um, has he stopped having fun with math by 1969? I don't know. But, um, but we saw no evidence in that later, much later conception, this elf life cycles and renewal of youth conception, um, had none of that kind of mathematical element in it at all. But now we go back. Now, someone was asking, I think last time, um, why did Carl Hostetter, when he put these texts t together, put this 1959 stuff? Like, it was mostly laid out kind of chronologically. Why did he, why is this stuff so late in the part, you know, in part one um, and not put together with the other 1959 stuff? And I don't know the answer to that. But here's what I will say. I will say, um, somebody write that question down. And let's remember to ask, um, because I am, I have, I am not without hope. Um, I'm hoping to actually induce uh, Carl Hostetter to join us uh, at the end of this uh, uh, discussion. Um, when we finish the book, um, I want to have a session with Carl where we can ask him some questions about the book. And um, I'm sure there'll be a bunch of things that um, I can't explain. Uh, there are already things I can't explain. Um, so I would love to do a Q&A um, a Q&A session uh, with Carl, and that would be a great question uh, to ask him um, why it is that he that he did it that way. So, um, okay. Anyway, um, this is a fascinating application, right? Um, a, a fascinating application 
of the growth rate stuff to the Lord of the Rings story. Um, the only time that the mathematical calculations, right, that his, his working out the conception of growth and aging among the elves was really coming into contact with the Lord of the Rings story was in the Aragorn and Arwen timeline, right? And there it was only coming into play because he was taking their ages and those, you know, sort of that progress as fixed points, right? Um, now, now this is quite different, right? Um, uh, we see here he is attempting to explain we got the idea that time moves differently for elves. That elves perceive time differently. And what if that's what happened when they were in Lorien, right? So he wants to explain this. Um, and he can do it mathematically. Their growth rate and aging rate were altered, not quite to the elvish rate. They didn't, like, become elves, right, while they lived there. If they did that, then presumably Lorien would have been an even more popular retirement spot than it was. Um, but, um, but much slowed, say, to one to seven. So they only experienced four days, despite the fact that they were there 28-ish days, right? Um that's uh really interesting um yeah i and then we have the question of um uh, yeah kendall was saying does aragorn's aging get further slowed because he's already at the you know the one to three ratio um yeah i don't know was he at like one to 21 is it multiplicative right how does that work exactly is it average like is it uh is his age slowed to like uh well, I don't know, like one to five, right? Like between one to three and one to seven. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm not. Um, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not real clear on that either. Uh, I don't know how many days it appeared to be to Aragorn, right? But again, I, this this seems to me a very a fun and interesting but confusing little mashup. And I say it's a mashup because it seems to me a conceptual and mathematical mashup. Because there are two separate things that are at stake here, right? One is um, growth rate, like how long it takes you to grow up, right? To mature, for your body to mature. And then the other thing is perception of the passage of time, and he seems to be alighting those two things here, right? Like they didn't, the reason they didn't perceive the flowing of time is that um, their growth rate and aging had been altered. Is that how it worked? Like, really? I, I'm, now again, I'm not trying to be too critical. This is a tiny, this is a note that he wrote to himself. Like, this is just a, random thought, right, of Tolkien's. And I can certainly see how when he's in, in 1959, when he's in the, the the grip of his mathematical mania, right, when he's doing all of this, all of these calculations and thinking about all these growth rate ratios and everything else, 
um, why you know that he would come to the Lorian passage again and be like, "Hey, I've got a mathematical ratio for that, right? That would work. This is cool. This is fun. Um, I could absolutely see that happening. Um, but it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. And um, Eric, boy, that's a great question. Um, then downstream for a short while. What does that mean? I have no idea what that means. Um, then downstream. So um, the true 30 slash 28 days seemed about four. Then downstream for a short while. Um, uh, um, I don't know. Down, literally downstream? Are we talking about how, like, they went downstream and then spent another part of a day with Galadriel and Celeborn at all feasting, right? Um, you know, by the river down. Like, is that what he's talking about? Um, I don't know. Did the time rate follow them downstream a bit? Right, so it took a little while to wear off, maybe? Maybe, yeah. Then downstream for a short while. So their growth rate had altered while they were in Lorien and then downstream for a short while? Maybe, I guess. Um, right, yeah, Kendall was thinking that too, that the effect tapers off uh, after they leave Lorien. Maybe, maybe. I don't know how that would fit with the narrative. Exactly. I mean, we don't see them losing track of time when they're on the river, right? Nobody's like, what is it, time to stop already? I feel like we just started, right? Like it's, uh, their, their perception of time seems to be more or less normal as soon as they get onto the river and leave Lorien behind. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't see exactly how that works, but... Um, Rachel, how would that work for Legolas? Well, it wouldn't change Legolas' growth rate, presumably, right? Um, but it wouldn't need to. It was going to feel like four days to Legolas, no matter what, right? Uh, I mean, it's the only thing that was weird that it, is, that, is that it felt like four days to everybody else, right? Um, it was a given that it was going to feel like four days to Legolas. I mean, the whole, um, um, you know, that's why, uh, that's why he doesn't get as tired, you know, when running across Rohan, because he feels like he's only been running for, you know, um, a short period of time. That's not true. It's not how it works. But again, I, I don't know. So I find this complicated, problematic. I'm highly dubious, but it's fun, interesting to see Tolkien uh thinking about this this way. And this jumped out at me again because it was the first time we see him trying to explain a phenomenon in the Lord of the Rings story, other than the marriage age of Arwen, um, with this other math stuff. So that's interesting. Um, huh. Hmm... Gwyrendes, that's interesting. It's possible, I guess. It's possible. Um, Guirendes is recalling Aragorn's comment about how he must be out of his reckoning um, because he didn't think they would have gotten to Sarngebir yet. I would never have associated that with the passage of time, like his perception of the passage of time. Um, that seemed to me his gauging of distance. But 
Because, I mean, presumably, if... I mean, howsoever... Like, are we really imagining that they were on the river, canoeing on the river for days and nights, like, that went by without them noticing? So, like, they thought they were only on the river for, like, eight hours or something, right? And then they get out at sunset, um, except it was actually two days they were on the river instead of one, right? But it felt like one day because downstream for a short while, things were still at a weirdo growth rate. So, um, you know, they actually boated for two days when they thought they were only boating for one day. Like, really? Like, Aragorn would not have noticed when the sun set and the moon rose and the sun rose again? Like, this escaped all of their attention? I mean, again, that's, that's exactly what happened while they were in Lorien. Right. So again, it's, it's not like on, on that level, it doesn't seem impossible, but it it sure seems highly improbable under that kind of circumstance. Right. Um, and that's what would have had to happen for him to be out of his reckoning for that reason. Right. Um, he. Uh, he's Aragorn. Aragorn attributes the getting to Sarngebir quicker than he thought they would by his misgauging of the speed of the river. Uh, that the, the, the river is literally flowing faster than he remembered that it flowed, was, that, it, that it, you know, was flowing. Again, it's theoretically possible. I, that's well-remembered, Guirendes. I mean, you could well be right. It may well be that passage that he's thinking of when he wrote, then downstream for a short while. But it's just when I actually stop and look at that and think of what that would have to mean, I, um, uh, I know Aragorn um, has some unkind words for his own performance as their guide, but I still would rather think um, uh, would rather think that he was a better guy than that. To not, to not notice uh, when darkness fell and the sun rose again. But anyway, um, okay. Let's keep going. So back to the perception of time. The question of perception of time is more difficult to deal with since it varies with persons, circumstances, and kinds of persons, and it is difficult also to express or communicate, so that when the Eldar conversed with the Atani on such matters, neither side was sure that they understood the others clearly. And again, the fair of the elves and of men are not corporeal, are subject actually to time, and are able to move in it in thought and retrospect, and so can have divergent views of the subjective length of one and the same time or experience." They may say of such, it fleeted by, and yet it seemed to endure for ages. These things, however, so far as the Eldar are concerned, seem specially to influence time perception and or its recollection. On one side, youth, inexperience, vigor, and eagerness. On the other, age, experience, failing vigor, dullness. And secondly, full occupation in delight, affection, or mutual interest, and on the other side, lack of occupation or mutual interest, an absence of delight, or a presence of distaste or pain. Okay. All right. Once again, I note in his discussion here, and I, I will, let me just say uh, 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 off the front here, okay, out front, 
this discussion in chapter 20 of the perception of time, um, I kind of struggled with this. I mean, I was having a hard time following everything that he was saying here. He's He seems to me to be kind of casting about for a better way to explain this, a better way to talk about how, why the perception of Elvish time is different. Um, how that differs from humans. The fundamental thing that it seems... Um, uh, the fundamental thing that it seems to... that The starting point, I guess I would say, of his... of what he's trying to explain seems to me to go back to what he said before. That is, he didn't want anybody to think that elves were living in slow motion. Right? Don't think of them going through life at this snail's pace with their minds moving at a snail's pace. Um, And of course, it's hard because he has a precedent for that, right? Um, And it would be very easy for readers of The Lord of the Rings to begin to think of the Ents, right, when they are reading about the elves going through life at this slow, thoughtful pace, right? Um, and he says, elves are not like that. Elves are not like that at all. Um, so then what are they like? And how does it work? Um, and so he that seems to me still what he's trying to explain. And he um, has a, you know, a bunch of different, um, um, you know, a bunch of different uh, um, ways to try to think about that. What he's getting at here is the subjectivity of time, right? Um, The fair of elves and of men are not corporeal or subject to time and are able to move in it in thought and retrospect and so can have divergent views of the subjective length of one and the same time or experience. Um, Our fair, our fair, human fair as well as elvish fair, right? Our own consciousness, consciousnesses, our minds are not bound merely to progressive time, right? We can think back in time. We can, you know, we can imagine ahead in time. Um, we can be focused in on something. We can be thinking about nothing, right? There's lots of ways in which we, you know, one time, one objective time period can not only seem... You know, like, so you've got one 15-minute period and another 15-minute period, each of which might seem, you know, one feels like it's gone in a heartbeat and the other feels like it lasts for an hour and a half, right? Um, uh, Those, we've all had those different kinds of experiences. So on the one hand, we have some way to understand this, these kinds of differences. Um, It's that second paragraph I want to go through again, though. These things, however, so far as the Eldar are concerned, that is this subjectivity in in the experience of time's passage, these things, so far as the Eldar are concerned, seem specially to influence time perception and or its recollection. Okay, so the following things, I, I, I believe that he means. So these are the things. Among the things which specially influence time perception and or its recollection are the following. Youth and eagerness on the one side. Age and dullness on the other side. And secondly, full occupation and delight, affection or mutual interest, 
lack of occupation, mutual interest in absence of delight, or a presence of distaste or pain. So presumably, it's the former ones that make time go fast, and the latter ones which make time go slow. In subjectively, right? Subjectively. Um, yes. Yes. Thistledown kind of like the shift of time at the DMV. Exactly. I think that would be... Um, Lack of occupation, mutual interest in absence of delight or a presence of distaste or pain, or indeed all of the above, right? Um, yes, I think that's um, uh, that seems to me perfectly fair. So, okay. And then he keeps going. The length of time that is attributed to youth as against age is probably chiefly one of hope and expectation allowed, maybe, to inexperience. A child's afternoon seems a boundless vista but this is chiefly in thought or before it is spent. If it is fully of occupation, it will race by soon like a flash, and tea time will come before anything but a beginning of the plan is achieved. By the way, I totally thought he was talking about my whole life when he described this. I live in this continual state. Um, when the afternoon, or whenever I have a period of time ahead of me, I am completely convinced that it is a boundless vista right? Ah, the marvelous stretches of time. Oh, I can't wait. I have all this time to do this thing or, oh, I'm going to be able to relax for this whole chunk of time. And then it races by like a flash and then tea time comes and nothing but a beginning of the plan is achieved. Man. Um, tea time will come before anything but a beginning of the plan is achieved. Boy, that could be, uh, that could be the subtitle of my biography. Um, but, so, yeah, I'm I'm tracking. I'm tracking with this for sure. The old look forward with hard experience, an afternoon they know will not suffice for much achievement. It seems brief in prospect, as it proves, but whether it actually during the experience of it seems any briefer than the same actual period in childhood spent in about the same amount of occupation may be much doubted. So here's him... Um, here's him wondering, right? Here's him wondering about... Um, uh, the difference in of of uh, in in age, right? Um, the difference in age between um, the uh, how they perceive time. And again, I'm I'm taking this as him thinking aloud, like thinking with his pen here, right? He's thinking with his brain. He's thinking with his pen and trying to think. Is age a good way to try to explain this, right? Um, will it help to compare elves and humans to, like, the young and the old? Like, the humans presumably being the young and the elves the old. Like, is that going to help? Um, but it seems like even he is wondering whether this, um, whether this is actually helping, right? Um, uh, so, and... There, I didn't find very much that was very like definitive. But again, I enjoy. I always enjoy reading Tolkien's notes to himself, because there we are just we are seeing his mind work right. How he thought, as he is clearly thinking with his pen, right. He's clearly thinking through these ideas. Um, okay, so I love this part. Him. This is, of course, from some of his language notes um, on the, the time words 
that elves use. So once again, he's doing world building here, but he's doing world building in the context of what he loves best, which is his invented languages, right? Um, and he says, our language is confused using after or before both in certain circumstances of the future. We sometimes think and speak of the future as what lies before us. We look ahead, are provident, forward-looking, yet our ancestors preceded us and are our forefathers. And any event in time is before one that is later. So what is before, past or the future? We speak as if events and the succession of human lives were in an endless column moving forward into the unknown, and those born later are behind us, will follow us, yet also as if, though facing the future, we were walking backwards or being driven backwards, and our children and heirs, posterity, were ahead of us and will in each generation go further forwards into the future than we. A widow is a relict, one left behind by a husband who goes on. As far as a single experiencing mind goes, it seems a most natural transference of spatial or linear language to say that the past is behind it and that it advances forward into the future. That later events are before or in front of earlier ones. At the point when the individual ceases the survivor, ceases, right? So when, when a person dies, the survivors go on further ahead of him. All living creatures are in one mass or column marching on and falling out individually while others go on. Those who do so are left behind. Our ancestors who fell out earlier are further behind, behind us forever. Right, so here he's looking at, so he begins by looking at the actual metaphors inherent in our language. And his conclusion is, it is completely messed up. Completely messed up. Right, so we are wildly inconsistent about the metaphors that we use. The ahead, the 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 the, the before and after, the ahead and behind. Um, it doesn't make any sense, right? Um, so he says, as far as a single experiencing mind goes, in that second paragraph there, he's thinking about how would a non-confused people think about this, right? Because, of course, what he's doing is world-building, right? What he's doing is imagine putting himself into an elvish mind and saying, in order for me to figure out how elvish language works, how they talk about this stuff, right? What words they use and what metaphors underlie those words, they would probably be more consistent than we, because we clearly don't know what we're talking about. So there's his imagining, Right, he says it makes most clear and intuitive sense to imagine we're all we're all, we're all facing the future and our back is to the past, right? If that if we're not if we are in fact walking backwards or being driven backwards into the future, we're totally doing it wrong, right? And if we are, if we think about what is what is behind us as the future, right? What is before us as the past, um, that says something pretty significant about us and about our culture, right? Um, uh, okay, so how would the elves do it? How would they think about this, right? Um, so he's thought about one can, you know, here's how it would be if it were consistent, right? If we're looking towards the future and our backs are to the past, 
here's how we would talk about it. We would say the past is behind and that we're advancing towards the future. We'd say later events are before earlier ones. We, we wouldn't say like, oh yeah, that was, that was uh, you know, before the invention of the printing press, right? We would never say that. Because um, uh, before, what is forwards is the future, right? So later events, we would say that the, the invention of the printing press was before the, um, it was, what was it before? Before a lot of things, right? Um, it was, you know, before, it was long before the fall of Rome was the invention of the printing press, right? Um, before, forwards, into the future. It wasn't after it, it was before it, right? Off into the future. It's inconsistent to say that the past comes before. You're looking backwards if that happens. Um, our ancestors didn't are not before us. They're not our forefathers. They're our afterfathers. They're the ones who are, they're behind us, further behind, and ever the longer the further behind. Okay. So, in Elvish sentiment, the future was not one of hope or desire, but a decay and retrogression from former bliss and power. Though inevitably it lay ahead, as of one on a journey looking forward did not imply anticipation of delight. I look forward to seeing you again did not mean or imply I wish to see you again, and since that is arranged and or very likely, I am pleased. It meant simply... I expect to see you again with the certainty of foresight in some circumstances, or regard that as very probable. It might be with fear or dislike, foreboding. Their position as of Latter-day sentiment was as of exiles driven forward against their will, who were in mind or actual posture, ever looking backward. So he doesn't say, the elves are not confused like we are. Well, he does say that, in a sense, right? The elves are not confused. But many of the confusions that we have in our language are retained in their language because of their culture, right? Um, they know, they thought of the future as being ahead but they resolutely face the past and they move forward backwards. The difference is not really a time thing. It's an attitude thing. The future was not one of hope or desire, but a decay and retrogression from former bliss and power. The elves are on a downward slope and they know it. They are well aware of the future, but they don't like looking into the future. The future is not good for them. The future is only one of decay and retrogression from former bliss and power, and the ever the further, the more. So, I love the paraphrase of I look forward to seeing you again, right? When an elf says, I look forward to seeing you again, um, it may be with fear or dislike, right? <laughs> with, uh, you know, uh, uh, with loathing, right? Um, they, are, they are looking forward. Um, 
Yeah, the elves. I don't actually want to see us again, Nancy. It's it's that's it. It's it's kind of hard to avoid that conclusion, right? Um, now, Gerald, I'm not sure if this is the same in all elvish languages. Um, um, I mean, this passage makes it sound like that's the case. He's not specifying which of the elves are uh, are, are thinking like this, um, but that's um, that's very interesting. Um, it's very interesting. Um, their position was as of exiles driven forward against their will who were in mind or actual posture ever looking backward. By the way, here's another question I would ask Carl. And this is fortuitous, right? Because, of course, Carl is, um, you know, one of the people who's been working most with Tolkien's uh, language writings, right? His linguistic writings um, for years, you know, now. Um, so here's a question that I would ask Carl. I would ask um, not only the is this the same in all Elvish languages question, Gerald, which is a very good question. I would ask which came first? That is, did he introduce these words into his elvish languages and then perceive this pattern and draw this conclusion? Or did he do it the other way around? Did he think this out first and then decide what the elvish words were? Or had he already ascribed elvish words for, you know, had phrases which meant, you know, uh, to look forward to, um, you know, the, like, uh, the forefathers and those who were behind and all, like, all those things that he was talking about before. Had he already come up with words for all that, those things and said, huh, hang on, how does this work? And then this is the conclusion that he came. He's like, well, it fits if you imagine them going forward in time backwards, looking backwards because they're resisting. They're going, they're driven out like exiles into the future. Then it makes sense of the ways that they think. Um, because he had already said something exactly like that, right? You know, he had said, um, yet also as if though facing the future we were walking backwards or being driven backwards. And our children or heirs, our posterity, were ahead of us and will in each generation go further forwards into the future than we. So um, he's saying that one way to reconcile the apparent contradictions within our language is to imagine, like, we don't seem to be oriented in one clear way, um, or rather, our orientation does not seem to match our motion, right, forwards. It's as if we were looking backwards, being driven backwards. So, is that, in fact, what's leading him to say, like, whether or not that, in fact, explains our own confusion of language, he's saying it does explain the Elvish. What could be seen as an apparent confusion uh, in the Elvish language. And in fact, um, it's not necessarily a confusion, but rather a, um, an indication, an indication of the, um, the kind of, uh, the ways that they think. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. That brings us to the end. 
but a big finish. That random passage stuck into this file, which Carl included at the end of the chapter, um, this draft of Fingolfin's duel with Morgoth, in which we get a poetical defiance from Fingolfin to Morgoth. So that's worth reading. And all that beheld his onset fled in amaze, deeming that Orome himself was come, for a great madness of ire was upon him. Thus he came alone, even to Angban's gate, and smote upon it once again, and sounded a challenge upon his silver horn, calling upon Morgoth to come forth to combat, crying, Come forth, thou coward lurking lord, to fight with thine own hand and sword, thou wielder of hosts of slaves and thrall, pit-dweller shielded by strong walls, thou foe of gods and elven race, come forth and show thy craven face. Come forth, thou coward king, and fight with thine own hand, thou den-dweller, wielder of thralls, liar and lurker. Come foe of gods and elves, for I would see thy craven face. All right, for I would see thy craven face. Oh man, I love that line. Um, awesome. Awesome. Okay. So, um, what do we get here? What do we get here? Um, <laughs> Come forth, thou coward lurking lord, to fight with thine own hand and sword. Thou wielder of hosts of slaves and thrall, pit-dweller shielded by strong walls, thou foe of gods and elven race, come forth and show thy craven face. Interesting. Interesting. Where does this fit? Where does this fit? Poetically? Um, into what work of Tolkien's could this be inserted? Can you hear it? Um, it, um, it sounds exactly like, um, it sounds exactly like the um it sounds exa well, I don't want to say exactly it's very close to the lay of lathian let me just pull down the lay of lathian here and open it to a random page Thus Thingle sailed not on the seas, but dwelt amid the land of trees, and Melian he loved divine, whose voice was potent as the wine, the Valar drink in golden halls, where flower blooms and fountain falls. Um, same meter, right? Same meter. Um, the, what, what is the meter? Anybody get the meter? The last line is your key. Um, there's a lot of irregularities in here. For those of you who have been thinking about uh, Bilbo's farewell poem lately, we've been talking about that in Exploring Lord of the Rings. This is nothing like as regular as the rhythm of that poem. But um, that last line 
is pretty regular. Come forth and show thy craven face. Come forth and show thy craven face. Almost perfect iambic tetrameter. Four beats per line, right? Come forth, thou coward lurking lord, to fight with thine own hand and sword. Second line's perfect as well. To fight with thine own hand and sword. Um, very, very regular. Very regular. Iambic tetrameter. Some of those lines, but again, not all of them. Thou wielder of hosts of slaves and thrall, pit dweller, shielded by strong walls. That fourth one, the least uh, even of all of them. Um, we have rhyming couplets, which is the primary thing that makes me think Lay of Lathian. Um, the whole thing is in rhyming couplets, as you were hearing um, when I was just reading that bit. Um, so same meter, iambic tetrameter. Same rhyme scheme, iambic couplets. But there's more, right? There's more there. Um, when I read the first line, you know, when I was going through this and I read the, you know, I got to the first line this first time, I was not at all sure what meter he was writing in. It wasn't until we got the second line that it became clear. I was wondering, that is, if he was alliterating. Come forth, thou coward lurking lord. Um, is he alliterating? Yes. Is there alliteration? Uh, yeah, there's definitely alliteration. I meant, was he using alliterative verse? Um, it didn't quite feel like the rhythm of alliterative verse in that first line, but it sure had enough alliteration uh, to uh, look like it could be. So um, I wasn't sure, but again, the second one and the rhyming couplet makes it very clear. Um, it's a very, from first line to last, um, this, the, 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 the hard seas framing it, right? Come forth, uh, come forth. Coward, come forth, craven, right? Um, making it even stronger in that last line, right? With the with the repetition of that pattern, come forth, coward, come forth, craven. He repeats the F the second time too. Come forth and craven face. Uh, so we get like the double alliteration of come forth and craven face. Um, so it's it's repeated but even strengthened there at the end. Um, The repetition of the F in line in, in, in we got some sort of symmetry going on there. Um, again, the alliteration is symmetrical. Um, we've got you know to fight and thou foe. We got the, the strong Fs, which get again picking up the fourth, the come forth, come forth and craven face, uh, fight with thine own hand, thou foe of gods uh, and elven race. So in lines two and line five there, we get those W's, uh, wielder, dweller, and walls there in lines three and four, that pair in the middle, um, the shielded, strong slaves. Um, I mean, it's, the, it's the, the beat and the rhyme scheme dominates the sound of the verse, but it's the alliteration that makes this move, isn't it? Um, 
And boy, you can just see, this is such a fascinating example. A fascinating example of Tolkien. One of the things which, you know, Old English verse seems to have just done to Tolkien, Old English and Old Norse verse, seems to have just done to Tolkien, right? Um, he is so sensitive to alliteration. Not just... I don't know, um, using it in patterns in this way, um, if you see what I mean by that. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, Gerald Melkor does use a hammer, but um, nobody knows that. He, he's never done it before. Um, this is the only time Melkor comes out to fight. I mean, we know he fights with... Tolkas, or Tolkas fights with him anyway, but they seem to wrestle at that point. Um, and I suspect that Melkor did have a sword in Valinor back when he was teaching the Nolor to make swords. I bet you he had one that he made for himself, you know, to show them. Um, I bet you he did have a sword in Valinor. He does not indeed, in the event, come out and fight with a sword. Right, he comes out and fights with a hammer. But again, he never, he never had, he never had before. Um, so that's um, sort of a, sort of a surprise. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, um, Notice how he, that is, Fingolfin, picks up on this. On the momentum and power of his alliteration. Come forth, when he gets to prose, right? Come forth, thou coward king, and fight with thine own hand. Um, notice again the repetition of the seas, come, the, come forth, coward, right? And then hitting back on the F again, just like he does in line two and in line five of the verse. And fight with thine own hand, thou den-dweller, wielder of thralls, liar and lurker. Den-dweller, liar and lurker. Wielder of thralls. Um, that doesn't alliterate, not with the initial letters anyway, uh, though the repetition of the L sounds in the middle of those words is very audible. Right. Den-dweller, wielder of thralls, liar and lurker. And the elves come to the front, right, at the end. Come, foe of gods and elves, for I would see thy craven face. Again, come, foe, craven face. Um, he reiterates not just the sentiments, but even the alliterative patterns of his verse um, there at the end. Um, yeah, yeah. Um... Pretty cool stuff. Pretty cool stuff. Uh, neat to see the poetic defiance of Fingolfin here. Not to mention, surprising. I don't know about you, but I was surprised when I got to this chapter and was like, well, all right, that's not how I expected to end part one. This is a bit of a departure from math. Uh, but there we go. We end, uh, we do math all the way through and end with myth. Uh, the mythic confrontation of Morgoth and Fingolfin. 
All right. Well, I'm going to let you guys go as we are perfectly to the end of our time um, and to the end of part one as planned and promised, because when I see a boundless vista of a class in front of me, I know exactly how much we're going to cover. Um, part two next time. So let's do again chapters one through seven. Let's read chapters one through seven and we'll see how far we get uh, next time. And the next time will be, as you will recall, on the first, the first, the fifth of January, one five, fifth of January, uh, next month. Thank you, everybody. Have a great holiday. I'll be back for some film tomorrow night and for my Griffith stream over on the Lotro official Twitch channel on Friday afternoons, as always. Uh, and then we'll be back for more exploring. Uh, nothing is not exploring Lord of the Rings. We'll be back for more Mythgard Academy uh, and continue our discussion on the nature of Middle Earth in January. Thanks, everybody. Uh, see you guys next year, if not before. Bye now.